Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode continues our Cultural Heritage Preservation in the Maghreb lecture series and was recorded on April 19th, 2022 at the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis. In this podcast, Neely Egan, the CIMAT Cultural History of Tourism researcher, interviews Professor Munir Khalifa about his research on Roman Duga, heritage preservation in an antique city. Thank you for joining me today and talking about Tunisia's cultural heritage, in particular the general subject and also one of the most wonderful sites in Tunisia, Duga. Can you, Munir, just give us a brief history of Duga and some information that might be interesting for our listeners to learn? Thank you for inviting me. I think a good beginning to talk about Duga is the explanatory note that the UNESCO World Heritage said about Duga when they granted it the status of World Heritage. And the description of Duga as possibly the best preserved small town Roman African site, which it is. But perhaps what this little sentence does not mention is that Duga has not started its history with Roman Africa, but much preceded it. In the northern part of the site, there are dolmens. And as you know, dolmens are megalithic tombs or sepulchres of the Neolithic age, which preceded the Bronze Age, roughly between 5000 or 6000 BC and 3000. So there are human settlements on Duga's site as far back as probably 4000 years BC. And the reason why is that the site of Duga lends itself to human living and settlement. It's on a ridge about 600 meters above sea level, which gives it protection and wholesome air. There are building materials, stones and quarries, and of course there is plenty of running fresh water from springs. These three elements make for a human settlement. The first possibly recorded history of Duga may have been by Diodorus of Sicily, who talks about a city that was ransacked by one of the Greek tyrants of Syracuse, Agathocles, in the 4th century, who came in battle against Carthage. And he made incursions inland, and Diodorus of Sicily talks about a city called Chuka or Tukal, or Tukai. And many historians think that this possibly could refer to a Numidian settlement who were allies of Carthage, and hence the ransacking of the city. But now, the existing monuments, the most ancient after the dolmens, are possibly the Libico-Punic mausoleum, which goes back to the 2nd century BC. There are also vestiges of a temple dedicated to Massinissa, who was an ally of Rome against Carthage in 146 BC. And this temple dedicated to Massinissa, the ruins of which now are near the Forum, in the Roman part. Then, with the destruction of Carthage, with the last Punic War in 146 BC, the Republic dug a ditch that goes from east of Tabraca today, all the way to Tripolitania. 
and it ran just a little east of Duga, a few hundred meters, which bespeaks of the status of Duga. It was within the compass of ancient Carthage, yet it wasn't. It was Numidian. Hence, the running of the Fossa Regia, just away from it, near the modern city of Tubersicum. The interesting thing I mentioned about the mausoleum, which is the second century BC, and Libico-Punic inscription that is now in the British Museum, also tells of a mixing of cultures between Numidians, or the Bien or Amazir, or Berbers, and Punic, or Phoenician, and at the same time also beginning to be Roman. The inscription is in Libico-Punic, but the mausoleum itself has architectural elements that are Egyptianizing. There are little Doric columns, which bespeaks of the Hellenic influences and so on. It came into Romanity really with the settlement of colonists and Augustus. Now we are talking about 30 BC. Augustus reigned from that period till 1880, long reign in which one of the things that he did is that he gave the colony of Carthage to veterans of war with Caesar. And Duga came into the domain of Carthage colony, and it came under its legal authority. It was part of Carthage, as it were. There were Roman colonists alongside the Berber community. By the first century, there were two communities existing together, Latin community, Roman, and an Amazir or Berber. The Roman were Pagus, and the Berber or the Numidians were described as Peregrini. Each one governed by their own laws. We also know from Roman sources that the Peregrini, that is the locals, had a Shufet at their head, that is the supreme magistrate. And you know that Shufet for Semitic people, the word is in the Bible, the Shufet is the supreme magistrate. So the Peregrini or the Berber community have adopted Phoenician ways or Punic ways, Carthaginian ways. Whereas, of course, the Roman colonists, the Pagus, have claimed Roman legal status and Roman jurisdiction. It will be until Marcus Aurelius when the two communities were given the status of Roman law then we will see throughout the 1st and the 2nd century rapprochement getting together between the Numidians and the Roman colonists. For a long, long time, people thought a wall that exists now, which later will be described as being that of very belated Byzantine fortification. For a long, long time, historians thought that that was the dividing line between the Pagus, the Roman colonists, but not at all one would imagine or should imagine that they were living together until Marcus Aurelius in the middle of the 2nd century AD where the Roman law was given to both of them. It seems that most of the existing monuments that you see now in Duga, most notably the theatre, the baths, the Capitoline temple, were donated by locals and most likely local Numidians that are Romanized. It will be under Septimus Severus in 205 that the city, now completely united, it would be impossible to distinguish the ancient Pagus and the Peregrini. The city of Duga now was given together the status of municipium, mm. of municipality, 2005. 
that would be the heyday under the Antonine dynasty, followed by the Severi, that would be the heyday. It will continue to prosper until the late second and early third centuries. But after Diocletian, by the early fourth century, it began to decline. For instance, one of the things you will note on the site, there are hardly any Christian vestiges. Yet, those were the days in which Carthage was teeming with churches and basilicas and so on, but not into them. The city will decline steadily until Arab conquest in the middle of the 7th century, and then it will be completely neglected and occupied by different people until the French, French colonization or protectorate, 1881, where they rediscovered the site and they began first encouraging people to move away from the ruins and they began excavations. That was the time, for instance, when the Libico-Punic mausoleum, which had been dismantled in 1842 by the British consul Sir Thomas Reed, will be put together between 1906 and I think 1908 and 1910, reassembled as it were. But what you see today is the result of that restoration work. The last locals to squat the ruins will be relocated down into the valley in about 1960. By Bourguiba. By Bourguiba. Bourguiba had, from early on, a policy of salvaging the heritage, protecting it and so on. When the national state came, the independent post-colonial state came in 1956, the agency or the administration in charge of heritage was called the Institut des Antiquités. This immediately after independence in 1957, Bourguiba replaced it by INA, which stands in French for the Institut National des Arts et de l'Archéologie. And the INA in 1994 will take the name the INP, the Institut National du Patrimoine. The same year also, 1994, that another administration or office was founded, which is the Agence du Patrimoine et de la Promotion Culturelle. Admittedly, the ENP is in charge of research, excavation, the policy of excavation, and the Agence de la Promotion du Patrimoine et de la Protection Culturelle would be in charge, as the name indicates, of promoting and marketing the heritage. Uh, this is, if you like, the administrative situation now. Of course, what you will see if you go to visit any site that there's a lot to be desired. There's a lot to be desired. Apart from the sorrowful state of neglect and disrepair, I believe that there are areas in which urgently I think the state should intervene. First, there should be a thorough work of inventory of all of the sites, of all what we call heritage. We probably will do well not to just equate heritage with ruins and vestiges many, many other things to look at. National trust that should be preserved. A policy of systematic research, creating a national catalog or inventory is of the essence. To begin with, we must know what we have to salvage. We know lots of things, but there are so many other things that don't come into the picture. And the second area is protecting. And I think protecting the heritage or salvaging it or safeguarding it 
should look into three areas of protection. First, the physical side. Mm. Most of, to take just the ruins, are in open daylight and suffering from degradations of all sorts. Human being degradation, beast degradation, all forms of depredations as well, theft, and so on. The other ways that the heritage should be protected, I think, is juridical. There's a lot of legal issues still arising from land ownership, land deeds, who owns what, and so on and so on. Again, then you come in the big issue, whether the livings have a right over the dead, and so on and so forth. And the third one is institutional. Now the vestiges or the heritage is under the ages of the Ministry of Culture, but other ministries also come in to encroach upon that institutional safeguard, which Ministry of Tourism, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Environment, and so on and so forth. So these are the three areas, I think, in which an effort should be stepped up in order to protect the heritage. Yeah, and that involves people, everyone in Tunisia, to participate in some way. Absolutely. I think the third area to upgrade and promote the heritage is to sensitize civil society and the local collectivities, as we say, to the importance of national heritage. And I think people will see its importance not only as something self-valorizing, and here school and education comes into great importance. I think kids from early on should be sensitized and taught about national heritage and national history, but also if they see the economic worth. No, absolutely, because their cultural heritage does have also an aspect of it that can be industrialized in the sense of tourism. Yes, in the manner of local tour guides or gods or janitor position. No, this should be expanded to a larger interconnectedness between heritage and mm. local economy. The other area is international research. Yes, we are not alone. There are many countries, not only in the Mediterranean basin, but elsewhere, from whose experience and good practices, I think the government and the INA could greatly learn. Last but not least, we should have, or at least the government should have, a strategy for heritage. Now it's a day-by-day improvisation. But I think there should be a plan, short-term, medium-term, long-term, what to do with this heritage. For the moment, to my knowledge, there is a National Commission for National Heritage. But whether it is drafting such a strategic program, I don't know. But I think these are areas in which reflection on the promotion of national heritage would be most welcome. Well, amazing. Thank you for taking us through Duga and also just contextualizing cultural heritage here in Tunisia. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode. <laughs>